Good morning. My name is Matt Witzel, and I serve as the administrative pastor here at Hallmark. I'm the substitute preacher today. <laughs> pastor John is in Romania, so he and the team that is with him would appreciate your prayers. And I also ask you to please uh, work with me. I love the weather this time of year, but something about the weather is not agreeing with my system. And so uh, I'm going to try to plug through this, all right? Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14, John chapter 14 this morning. Over the past couple of months, we've been looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the gospel of John. With these statements, Jesus has two objectives. First, he's going to declare that he is God. He alone is God. And secondly, he's trying to use metaphors to help us understand how we can relate to him as our God. And as we've been saying almost every week, I am changes who I am. That is the very heart of the message that Jesus is trying to accomplish in this passage when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, let's read verses 1 through 11. Verse 1 says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way to where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us this morning. Please guide our thoughts. Please open our hearts. Please help us to be receptive to your word. It's your name that we pray. Amen. One of my fondest memories from growing up in my childhood was going to visit Grandma's house. All right? Grandma lived in Illinois. We lived in Georgia, so there's a considerable distance between us. So those visits were not as often and as frequent as we would have liked. But those visits were very special. The strongest memories from those visits is when we were leaving Grandmother's house. It always went the same way. Our families would gather together. We would hug. We would say goodbyes. My grandmother would be crying, my parents would be crying, and us kids, you know, we're just wondering if we can get some more cookies from grandma to take home with us on the ride home. We would all pile into our car, we would roll down the windows, we would wave back at grandma as we were leaving her house. Grandma would be on her porch, waving back at us, and of course the tears were still streaming down her face. But as our vehicle would progress away from her house, grandma would leap off of the porch and sprint to her backyard. You see, the road that Grandma lived on was a one-way street, and it kind of had a horseshoe bend in it. 
And so as we left her house on one side of the neighborhood, we would come to the other side, and Grandma would come running through the neighbor's yards, waving at us one more time. <laughs> Nothing says I love you like an 80-year-old grandmother running through the neighborhood like an Olympic hurdler just to get one more wave goodbye. But goodbyes are difficult sometimes, especially way back in the late 1900s. If you can remember, there was no internet, no Instagram, no FaceTime. And if you wanted to make a long-distance phone call, it was going to cost you 25 cents a minute. And so a loved one that was far away, it was difficult when you said goodbye because of the uncertainty of that time of when you may be reunited. This is the situation we have here in John chapter 13 and 14. Really, both of these chapters, 13 and 14, could be one chapter. It happens with the same group of men in the same room. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, and they have just celebrated the Passover meal, something they've probably done in the past. But this time, it's different, and the disciples know it. Because in John chapter 13, Jesus tells them three things that catches them completely off guard. First, he tells them that he's leaving them. Then he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And the third thing he tells them is that Peter, the leader in the group, is going to deny that he even knew Jesus three times that very night. In just a few short moments, the disciples realized that their world was about to be turned upside down. This was terrifying news. To that end, Jesus immediately responds in chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, if you and I in that room, we are probably asking the question, what do you mean? How am I not supposed to be troubled, right? Uh, you're about to abandon me. Someone's going to rat you out, and he's going to deny he even knew you. I've sacrificed everything to follow you for the past three, lives, three years of my life. Was it all for nothing, Jesus? Let not your hearts be troubled. Something important for us to notice here is what Jesus is not saying. Jesus never said, do not let troubles come into your life. Troubles will come into my life. In this world, we will have many troubles, likely on a daily basis. Jesus is telling his disciples that when those troubles do come, we don't let them come into our heart. See, I can't control the curveballs life will throw at me, but I can control the way I swing at the pitch. You're going to have troubles in this life. You're going to have work troubles. Tomorrow is Monday morning. Monday mornings were made for work troubles, right? <laughs> Let not your heart be troubled. You will have troubles in your marriage. Marriage is not easy. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. Let not your heart be troubled. You will have troubles with your health. One day the doctor may give you the news you never wanted to hear. Let not your heart be troubled. You will even have troubles in church. And if Pastor John's not here, can we keep a secret? You may have troubles in this church. I've been here for a little while, and I know some of you. You're troubled. <laughs> you will walk into this room one day, and someone will be sitting in your seat. You'll probably get coffee at the coffee bar. It's going to be too hot. You may stand in line to get donuts, and they might run out. Let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> so what should I do when these troubles come? Jesus gives us the answer 
in this passage. In fact, he gives it four times. And I want you to see if you notice it. Look at the first verse and the last verse that we read, verse 1 and verse 11. Four times in those verses, he's going to repeat himself. Twice in verse 1, twice in verse 11. Do you see the word that he's saying? What is he repeating? What is it? Believe. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. What should I do when troubles come? I should believe. I should have faith. I should trust God. Faith is the remedy for followers of Christ in times of distress. And in this passage, when the disciples are at one of the most distraught moments of their lives, Jesus is going to give them three reasons why they can trust him. Number one, we can trust Jesus because the Father has made room for us. The Father has made room for us. Notice in verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And in this passage, Jesus is clearly talking about heaven, but yet he never mentions the word heaven. Instead, he refers to it as the Father's house. By using the word Father, he's trying to describe the nature of the relationship of the living arrangements. This is Dad's house. And in Dad's house, we're family. The Father is not going to be looking down on us like tenants, and he's the landlord. Followers of Christ are accepted into the Father's house as his own children. And this is a trait that separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. All the other gods expect you to submit to them through acts of service, but not our Father. The Father's not looking down for religious acts of service from his children. He desires relationship with his children. David points this out in Psalm 51 when he cries out to the Father, You do not desire a sacrifice, or I'd offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. The Father desires relationship with his children. But also notice, this is the Father's house. It's a house. It's not a hotel. It's not an Airbnb or a Verbo. The Father has made everlasting uh, living solution for his children. There's no need to worry about booking fees, checking fees, and you don't have to check out by 10 a.m., The Father has made a permanent solution for his children. But also notice, there's even more, that in my Father's house are many rooms. The Father's house is a big place. The Father has room for all. The New Living Translation puts it this way, there is more than enough room in my Father's house. Another translation says this, in my Father's house are many mansions. So what's the big idea? The big idea is this is a big house. One theologian said this, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. It has a big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. It's my father's house. I get my theology from 1990s Christian songs. <laughs> but the father has a big house. He has room for everyone, and he wants everyone to come to his house. Second Peter chapter 3 says, the Father is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You see, the Father's house is a place of love and acceptance and relationship, and there's room 
for all because the father desires to reside with his children. So in this moment of distress, in this moment of loss and confusion for the disciples, and in the moments that we are suffering troubles in our marriage, in our workplace, and in our life, Jesus wants us to understand that the hope of heaven is the cure for a troubled heart. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, because the Father has made room for you. The next reason why we can trust Jesus is because the Son has made preparations for us. The Son's made preparations for us. Notice again in verse 2, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, it's an intriguing thought. The Father's house needs to be prepared. Does that mean the Father's house is in disrepair? Is the Father's house being modernized with an open concept look and feel? Does that mean that even God the Father has de experiences delays in getting the contractor to show up on the job site? Right? What does this mean that the Father's house has to be prepared? How does the same God who spoke the entire universe into existence still needing to prepare the house? Well, to understand this, we have to travel way back in history to a promise that God made that has not yet been fulfilled as of John chapter 14, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when everything in the world was perfect, man enjoyed a perfect relationship with God the Father in the Garden. But man sinned against God and that relationship was broken and man and God were then separated. And along with that broken relationship were a couple of consequences and a promise. The consequence for man was that they were now going to have to work and they would, they would now sweat when they work. Thus the need for deodorant. The consequences for women is there would now be pain in childbirth. From what I understand, that's still true today. But there was also a promise in the midst of this. A promise that one day, born of a woman, would be a man. And this man would strike the head of a serpent and the serpent would strike his heel. This was the promise of God to rescue mankind, to restore that broken relationship that had occurred. But we have very few details. Who is this man? Who is this woman? When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Can you imagine Eve, her firstborn child, was a male son? Can you imagine what she might have been thinking? Is this the one? Is he going to be the one that rescues us? All throughout the Old Testament, every time someone gave birth to a male child, they're looking in anticipation. Will he be the one? Is he going to rescue us? For thousands of years, they have been waiting and hoping for the day God will restore that relationship. Fast forward back to John chapter 14. Jesus says something that gets Thomas' attention in verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, I'm going to the Father's house. I will come again and bring you to the Father's house. I will live with you in the Father's house. You know the way to where I'm going. In my mind, Thomas can't believe what he's hearing. Is this the rescuer? Is he the one? Is now finally the time? Our relationship's going to be restored? 
I mean, have you ever waited for so long for something that when it finally came true, you were just in absolute disbelief and you didn't know what to say? I think Thomas is in that same situation. I see him as being just awestruck in the moment. And so he responds in verse number five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, this wasn't the best question for Thomas to ask. I mean, you would think if you'd been following Jesus for the past three years of your life, one thing you would know is where he is going. It's not like he kept it a secret. But in this moment, we're thankful for Thomas. Because without him asking this question in verse 5, we would never have the response we have in verse number 6. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells Thomas, I am the singular exclusive way. I am the singular exclusive truth. I am the singular exclusive life. There are no other options. It's all through me. When Jesus says he is the way, he is telling us that he is the way to the Father. This world to me is like a perpetual merry-go-round. The ride begins, you have some ups and downs, the ride ends, and you're right back where you started. My life began with other people feeding me, bathing me, and changing my diapers. I go through some ups and downs in life, and my life's going to end with other people feeding me, bathing me, and changing my diapers. <laughs> Jesus comes up to us and says, I'm the way off the merry-go-round. This ride has some ups and downs. You might enjoy it for a little bit, but there's no true joy in this ride. I'm the way off. There's no other way because I'm the way to the Father. When Jesus says that he is the truth, he's telling us that he is the truth to understanding the Father. Have you found it difficult to find truth in this world? I am convinced this world hates the truth. It despises the truth, it suppresses the truth, and it does everything it can to choose to elevate preferences to be the truth rather than what actually is the truth. This world hates the truth and especially hates to hear that Jesus is the only one singular exclusive truth. And to this world, that is an absurd idea. It is narrow-minded. We have to have our options. But Jesus does not allow any room for any other options. He is the truth to, that leads to the Father. So what does this mean for other world religions? It means that the truth of the Father is not found in Muhammad. It means that the truth of the Father is not found in Buddhism. Yes, there are millions and billions of people around the world that believe in something else than what we do. They're good people, they're sincere people, they're moral people, they're devout to their faith, they do good works, they give to the poor. But according to Jesus, if they do not know him, they do not know the truth, and they're following a lie. And those of us with the truth are obliged, we are commanded to go and tell the truth. The gospel came to us so that because it was headed to someone else, Jesus never intended the truth to be kept a secret. But not only is he the way, not only is he the truth, Jesus says he's the life he is the life to be lived with the Father. He is referring to the power of life, the life that we now enjoy here on earth, and also the life that we will enjoy, uh, more specifically, to the, the power of eternal life that we will enjoy with the Father in the Father's house. From creation to resurrection, Jesus is the power of life that has created us and that has sustained us. 
Thomas Kempis, a writer from the 1400s, a real theologian, uh, said it this way. He said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Jesus declares he is all of these himself. He is declaring he is God. There are no other options. But let's go back to preparations. Jesus has made preparations. When Jesus told the disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them, it's not because the Father's house needed some updating. In fact, he wasn't referring specifically to the Father's house. He's actually referring to himself. Jesus needed preparations. You see, the only way for us to get back to the Father was through a payment for the sin that separated us from the Father. And in John 1, the first, the first chapter of this gospel, Jesus is introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, how's he going to do that? Jesus is going to do that by being the payment for that sin. But he's not yet prepared as of John chapter 14. You see, there's four things he must do. First, he must live a perfect life. And then after that, he must die as a payment for sin. Shortly later, this very night in John chapter 14, he's going to be arrested, questioned, mocked, tortured, and beaten. He'll then be hung on a cross for all the world to observe. The wrath of God would be poured out on him, costing him his life. He must die as a payment for sin. But also, he must rise from the grave to defeat death. And then, he must ascend to the Father to be glorified. When he has done these things then he will have been prepared to come back to take his followers to himself and to the Father. Then the way would have been prepared for us. See, you and I are not capable of doing those things. Only Jesus is. He's the only option. And so when Thomas tells him, Jesus, we, we don't know the way. Tell us the way. Jesus is saying, yes, Thomas, you do know the way because you know me. I am the way. I am the rescuer. I will be wounded, and I will die, but I will crush the head of the serpent, and I will defeat death and give you life. So right now, I know you're in confusion, and you don't know what's going on, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, because I have prepared the way to the Father for you. Now, Jesus has given us two wonderful reasons why we can trust him, but if we're being honest, both of these reasons are a long ways away. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. The disciples needed help right now, and we can feel that when Philip questions Jesus or interacts with Jesus in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, if you had known me, uh, Jesus says, if you would have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. You see, Philip desires to see more from Jesus. And haven't we all been there? Like, God, you've done so much for me over my entire life, but God, I need you to do a little bit more for you. Philip walked with Jesus every day for the previous three years of his life, and it's still not enough. He still needs a little bit more. Well, Jesus is merciful, and he gives us more. The third reason why we can trust Jesus is because the Father and the Son are one, and they are both with us. The emphasis of, <clears throat> of verses 7 through 11 is crystal clear. 
Six times Jesus says virtually the same thing, that he and the Father are so profoundly one that his presence is the very presence of God the Father. Notice with me in verse 7. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. The second half of verse 7, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then look down in verse 9, the beginning of verse 9, in response to Philip's question to see the Father, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? The second half of verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Verse 11, I am in the Father. And the Father is in me. Six times Jesus tries to make it crystal clear to us that he and the Father are the same. Is this enough for you, Philip? That when the Son is with you, the Father is also with you. And when the Father is with you, the Son is also with you. Yes, there may be moments where you feel like you're all alone. Yes, there may be times where you feel like you've been abandoned. But Jesus reminds us, that even in our darkest moments, that we're not alone, that he is with us. King David says this in Psalms 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I go? Nowhere. Or where shall I flee from your presence? Nowhere. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take my, the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall, sh shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, no matter where I go in this world, no matter what I'm going through in this world, the Father is with me. And when the Father is with me, the Son is also with me. You know, just one of them, would have been enough. But that's not how dad works. Dad makes this a family affair. And so, Philip, I understand. You're scared in this moment. There's a lot of uncertainties that are about to happen. But let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because I, the Son, and the Father are with you. I once heard a story about an elderly lady who would frequent the post office to get her stamps. Regularly and often, she would wait in line to get her stamps, and she would uh, wait through the line, and she would talk to the attendant behind the counter. She did this so often that the, most of the post office staff even uh, knew her by name. Uh, one Christmas, she went to get her stamps, and the line was extremely long. And so she, as an elderly lady, was struggling in this line, just trying to wait her turn. Some of the other customers in line noticed her struggle. They tried to help her out hold her belongings, get her a chair, get her a seat. Finally, one gentleman walked up to her and said, Ma'am, if you're wanting to buy some stamps, uh, you could get some from the machine in the lobby <clears throat> to help you avoid the wait. And the elderly lady looked at him and replied, Yes, I know, uh, but the machine is not going to ask me about my arthritis. <laughs> See, the elderly lady preferred conversation to convenience because relationships matter. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is personal, that the Father is relational. He knows our aches and our joys even more so than we do. So are you facing troubles in this life? He 
He sees them. The Father is with you. Is your marriage having trouble? He knows, and he's hurting with you. Is your health in trouble? He understands. Work troubles, kid troubles, life troubles, Jesus tells us, let not your heart be troubled. The Father has made room for you. The Son has made preparations for you. And the Father and Son are both with you. You're not alone in these struggles. Going down to verse 18 in this passage, I love when Jesus tells his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. Trust me. Believe in me. Have faith in me. I am the way and the truth and the life. I'd like to ask for everyone to bow your heads and to close your eyes. I'd like for us to just have a, a quick moment here of reflection on the way, the truth, and the life. What I want to be clear this morning is that Jesus offers a personal relationship to everyone. He is the only way to the Father. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart and to save you, if you've never began that relationship, I would implore you this morning that today can be the day that you begin that relationship with the Father. It's as simple as the ABCs of salvation. You can admit that you're a sinner. You can believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross. And then you can see, you can confess him as your Lord and Savior. It's a simple prayer. In fact, I will pray it right now. And if you'd like to pray it to the Father, you can do so in your seat right now, right where you are. There's nothing magical about the words, but you can just say something similar to what I'm about to say. Say, Dear Father, I admit I am a sinner and I have sinned against you. Father, I believe Jesus died on the, sin, on the cross for my sins, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And Father, I will confess you as my Lord and Savior all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you, prepare, if you prayed that this morning, we would love to connect with you. And so please scan the QR code that's in the pew in front of you. Let us know that you have begun your relationship with Jesus this morning. We would love to rejoice with you. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this truth. You are the way. You are the truth, and you are the life. Father, you know where each and every one of us are at right now. You know the troubles that we are facing. You know what's going to be happening in our lives tomorrow, even before we do. And Father, I pray that you would help us that in these moments, in these struggles, in these conflicts, in these troubles, help us to believe in you. Help us to trust you. Let not our hearts be troubled. Make our faith strong. Father, you have given us so much, and we know that you wouldn't do all that just to leave us alone. And so we rejoice that you are with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand and worship. Let's celebrate the one who is the way, the truth, and the life.